Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. If you'll look now in your Bibles to Psalm 23, what has to be the most familiar of all of the songs in the Psalter, a song of David, the shepherd king, that has to do with shepherding the flock. This is one of the earliest passages of Scripture that I can remember memorizing as a child. And unlike so many passages where I think familiarity and and lack of context sometimes leads us to misunderstand what these familiar words are saying, Psalm 23, I think, is a psalm that speaks to us very clearly and that you're not mistaken in the message that you derive from it. As we meditate on Psalm 23 this morning, though, I want to dig as deeply as we can into the idea of God's shepherdship and what it means for us as his flock. So hear the word of the Lord, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, we pray that you would fill us with a comfort that comes from having you as shepherd, from having you as the host who presides at our table. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Psalm 23 is a psalm of David, and it's no surprise knowing his biography that this familiar song has to do with David's first profession. King David was, of course, a shepherd before he was a king. In fact, in order to become a king, in order to be anointed, he had to first be fetched from the fields where he was tending his flock. All of the other brothers were lined up for the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, but not David. David's duties kept him with the sheep. Now, when he became king, of course, he came to understand that the duties and responsibilities of a king are a lot different from the duties and responsibilities of a mere shepherd. After all, a king has to lead his people. A king has to govern his realm. He has to protect his subjects. He has to provide for them at his table. David did all of these things as a king, very different from what he had done as a shepherd, although perhaps not so much, because a shepherd does all of those things as well. It's just that kings rule people, and shepherds rule sheep. Therein lies the difference. But David understood this. As I said, he was a shepherd king. He understood 
this dynamic. But it's interesting that when David writes these words, he's not drawing on his experience as a shepherd and then as a king and writing something like, I am the shepherd and my subjects are like my sheep. Instead, David writes, Yahweh is the shepherd and I am like his sheep. David identifies not with the leaders and the protectors and the hosts. David identifies with those who are led, those who are protected, those who are hosted. Even though he was the shepherd of the flock of Israel, in a spiritual sense, he knew that in fact he was one of the sheep. Although he presided over the lavish king's table, David knew that in a spiritual sense, he was one of the guests. I want you to observe something in that. No matter how much you've achieved in life, no matter how many people rely on you, no matter how many people's livelihood depends on you, no matter how many people listen whenever you open your mouth, you will always depend on God. You will always be one of his sheep. The tragedy is that it takes a disaster to remind us of this. In our greatness, in our livelihood, in our ruling, our authority, our responsibility for others, it takes a catastrophe to remind us that like David, we are his sheep. These words speak to us. The theme of the psalm is found in the very first verse. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not want. If we were going to render the underlying Hebrew quite literally, we would say something like, I shall not lack anything. I shall not lack anything. Wanting, lacking. So in the English, wanting can talk about desire. But in a more archaic sense, wanting has to do with, uh, we might say, suffering want. Like, like doing without something. So literally what we're saying is, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. I shall have everything that I need. Lacking nothing at all. In other words, this is a psalm of confidence in the providence of God. It takes a lot of trust in God to say, I will lack nothing. Nothing that I need. Nothing that is necessary to me. Nothing that is a component of my flourishing will be denied me because the Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. If you look at the six verses of Psalm 23, there is actually an interesting division between the two. And you may not have thought of this before because there's an overriding analogy here which has to do with the Lord being a shepherd. But that is, is an analogy that's really followed through in the first four verses. So the first two stanzas, verses one, two, and three making up that first stanza. And then verse four the second middle stanza has to do with the Lord as shepherd. God is a shepherd who provides for his flock. But the end of the psalm, in verses 5 and 6, the analogy shifts. 
The analogy is not a, a relationship between a shepherd and sheep, but something more like the relationship between a host and his guests. So in verses 5 and 6, we see that God is a host who provides for his guests. The point is, with God for your shepherd, your needs will be provided. When God is your shepherd, everything you need will be provided. With God as your host, you will always be overwhelmed with hospitality and with blessing. You can have confidence in those things. Whether you realize it or not, your flourishing depends on the goodness of your shepherd. Whether you realize it or not, your flourishing depends on the goodness of your shepherd. If you think a little bit about the lives of sheep, sheep, they do their thing. We imagine them living this sort of idyllic existence in biblical times. A little flock, a herd of sheep out in the pasture, munching on grass. You think about it. Whenever they they eat through the grass, suddenly they're led to another place where they continue to graze. Whenever they're thirsty, they're led to water where they can drink. If one of them happens to get separated from the group, he is ushered back in. There's a a search, and he's brought back into the flock. That's a pretty nice way to live. Sheep don't have worries, anxieties. The sheep never have to have a planning meeting and decide where should the herd go next? Where should we graze next? What water should we drink from? Oh, wait a second. There's only 99 of us. Weren't there 100? What happened? These are questions the sheep don't have to concern themselves with because they live an idyllic life despite the fact that they have no idea why. They're not really conscious of the power that governs the circumstances of their lives. They cannot perceive the way that all of the circumstances of their existence are are governed and overseen by the shepherd. And yet, they are. They live the life that they live because of the shepherd's presence. Because the shepherd watches over them. Because the shepherd makes sure that they have what they need. The sheep live this life that we sometimes can only dream of. I know sometimes when we look at this psalm and we're invited to think about, like, what is it about us that makes us like sheep? You may have heard um, someone say, perhaps even a pastor say, well, human beings are like sheep because we're both kind of stupid herd animals. We need somebody to, to knock us around, that sort of thing. I don't think that's actually what King David is getting at here. He's not saying people are like sheep because they're so stupid like sheep are. Let's not be cynical about human beings because King David is not cynical about the glory of being human. I think the point here is that we're like sheep because our flourishing depends on a shepherd who we're barely conscious of. We have no idea how much our circumstances depend on his guidance. We go through life imagining Mostly, we're the ones who are making the call. And yet, the reality is the shepherd leads the flock into flourishing. David writes, he makes me lie down in green pastures, in grassy fields. He leads me beside still waters, still waters, uh, waters of rest. 
He restores my soul, my nephesh in the Hebrew, my life. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. That sounds pretty good. It sounds pretty idyllic, pastoral, we might say. The physical calm and the structure of the life of the sheep that's described here parallels the spiritual calm, the spiritual structure of our lives. The grassy fields, the resting place full of water, these images are suggestive to the people of God of entering the promised land, the land of rest, the land of plenty. Just as the shepherd leads the flock to a place of resting, Yahweh, the God of Israel, has led his people into the land where they are meant to flourish. What does he do there? What does he do in this land? He restores souls. He repairs lives. And he does it by leading in a certain path, a certain way. The restoration of the soul comes as we travel the righteous path that the Psalms were always speaking of. And we do it for his name's sake, the psalmist says. In other words, for God's glory. Living for his name's sake, living for the glory of God. Pursuing righteousness for his name's sake. And letting him as shepherd Take care of the rest, seeking the kingdom first and trusting that all these things will be added to you. That's the way that our lives are like the lives of sheep. Because we have a shepherd who leads the flock into flourishing. And this is the structure of human flourishing. The pursuit of righteousness for God's sake. Shepherd does more than lead us into flourishing. He also protects the flock. The shepherd protects the flock through discipline. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The valley of the shadow of death, the valley of deep darkness, this place of danger, would have conjured a memory and the people of Israel of the wilderness wanderings. That was a valley of death. That was a place justifiably of fear. Because when you find yourself stranded in a wilderness, without the means of sustaining yourself, understandably, you can become afraid. And yet, walking through this valley, walking through this place of threat, we have no fear. How is that possible? It's not because there is no evil present. It's not because there is no evil. There's nothing to fear but fear itself. There is evil. There is danger in the valley. There are threats. There is reason for concern. The confidence, the fearlessness doesn't come, in other words, through denial. It doesn't come through some sort of uh, Pollyanna uh, determination. to to look at the silver lining and, and not see the danger. There is no fear in the valley because God is present. Danger is there, but so is God. Predators are there, but 
but so is the shepherd. And as long as he's there, we don't need to be afraid. For you are with me, the psalmist says. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Which is curious language when you think about it. I don't know about the kinds of comfort you enjoy. You think about comfort food, for example, the kind of things we shouldn't eat, but we do whenever we're feeling anxious in order to be comforted. But, but when you think of comfort food, or you think about, uh, well, let's be honest, how your wardrobe may have changed over the last eight weeks or so, how you might have, have worn a lot more, let's say, soft clothing than hard clothing most of the day, because you're dressing for Comfort, because you're living for comfort. Have you ever sought comfort from rods and staffs? No, they're hard. Like shepherds, actually. Shepherds, if you think about it, are hard men. They do tough stuff. David may have been the runt of the litter of the sons of Jesse, but he did kill bears and lions, things like that, when the opportunity arose. A rod can be a comfort only because the rod is the shepherd's club that he uses to beat away predators. The staff is a comfort because it's the crook that the shepherd uses to herd and control the sheep. And when you think about those words, that those are the things that that comfort us, it tells you something about the nature of comfort in this life. Protection comes through discipline, and discipline can be hard. If you think about it, what is the comfort that you're longing for right now? What would it take to comfort you in these uncertain times? Because there's a difference between the kind of comfort that we want and the kind of comfort that we get in this life. Your comfort now in this life must be the power and providence of God. Your comfort must be the knowledge that he wields the rod against the dangers that imperil you, that he wields the staff against you and your own sinful inclinations. In the wilderness, this is the kind of comfort that we need, whether we want it or not. You have to remember, as I've said earlier, this is not the promised land. So don't live like it is. The kind of comfort that is available to us is the kind of comfort that a shepherd offers. Jesus, in John chapter 10, gives us a window into that kind of comfort. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. What does that mean? In what sense is Jesus a shepherd? Well, he explains, if you look in John 10 and verses 3 and 4, he's a shepherd in the sense that when his sheep hear his voice, they follow him. They are summoned and they follow. If you skip ahead to verse 9, you see that his sheep are saved by hearing. And because of that, they, Jesus uses these words, they find pasture. Right? They enter into the land of promise, just as Psalm 23 talks about. In verses 12 and 13, Jesus speaks about the way the good shepherd fights the wolf who comes to prey on the sheep when the hireling just runs away. That's what it means to be a shepherd of comfort in this life. In fact, Jesus is the good shepherd because he will lay down his life for the sheep. 
He is the good shepherd because he lays down his life for the sheep. And by giving his life, and as he says, taking it up again, what Jesus does, he unites the flocks of Jew and Gentile into one herd, one flock together, the people of God. In other words, true comforts, the comfort that you need in this life is found in salvation, not in circumstances. When people pray in difficult times, and let's be honest, this is a time when we're probably more apt to turn to God in prayer than ordinarily. When we pray to him these days, essentially the words that we're praying are something like, Lord, make the wilderness comfortable. Make this a better wilderness. But then Jesus comes, the good shepherd, and he says, you're not staying here. Get up and follow me. Jesus doesn't make the wilderness more comfortable. He leads us out of it into the land of promise. That's what a shepherd does for the sheep. Whether you realize it or not, your flourishing depends on the goodness of the shepherd, Jesus Christ. And whether you realize it or not, your future depends on the generosity of Jesus Christ as your host. And this is where the analogy shifts. Suddenly, we're talking not about shepherds, but, but, but tables. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Whenever I read those words, the presence of my enemies, the idea of dining with your enemies in the immediate vicinity, it always makes me think, and I'm sure this was your first thought as well, of chapter 46 of the Three Musketeers. That's, of course, the, the chapter where the Three Musketeers are looking for a quiet place to have breakfast, and behind the lines is too hectic, so they decide to go between the lines and have breakfast in the bastion of Saint-Gervais, which is constantly under attack by the enemies. And if you think about it, it's, it's quite an act of bravado to go out there in the face of your enemies and have breakfast together. And when the enemy shoots, the, the musketeers are like, excuse us, but we're having breakfast. Could you guys hold it off? That kind of thing. Um, if you need a, a more biblical analogy than the three musketeers, think about manna in the wilderness. The wilderness, the, this desert wilderness, this is a place to go and die because you can't live off the land. And yet God provides manna from heaven and sustains his people, guarding them from the dangers of the wilderness. The point is this, when we turn to God in prayer, we pray, God, show your power by by destroying my enemies. God says, oh, I can do better than that. I'll set a table for you in their presence. That's power. I will entertain you. I will host you. I will lavish blessings upon you in their presence. Because that's the kind of power God possesses. Setting a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I can't read those words without thinking of this table, the communion table. Especially now. People ask when you... uh, I said run into them on the streets. You don't run into them on the streets. You run into them in uh, Zoom meetings. But people ask as a pastor, like, oh, have you guys had to stop worshiping? Have you, like, postponed or delayed or, or, or interrupted communion? 
And I would say, no, we have not stopped worshiping. We worship differently, a little irregularly, but we're still worshiping. And whether or not we've, we've stopped having communion depends on what you mean. I always think about Calvin's words in his commentary on John chapter 6, where he says, John chapter 6, you know, the bread of life. He says, that's not a chapter about the Lord's Supper. It's a chapter about what the Lord's Supper is about, which is communion with God through the body and blood of Christ that were given for us. The church has not stopped worshiping. And our communion with Christ has not been interrupted. Only the signs have, not what they signify. And that's important for us in this time to remember. Because God continues to be our host. The host proves how welcome we are at the table through overabundance. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You know, in the life of Jesus, the Pharisees did not approve of Jesus. They did not approve of the people that Jesus um, hung out with. In Luke's gospel, chapter 15, we find that the Pharisees and the scribes disapprove of Jesus because he eats with sinners, as if it was possible not to. And yet, the Pharisees, they still wanted to talk to Jesus. They still wanted to have this, this, this incredible rabbi at their table. And so occasionally Jesus got invitations to dinner from his critics. One of those was a Pharisee named Simon who brought Jesus to dinner, invited him with a group of Simon's friends so they could quiz Jesus, question him, that sort of thing. Maybe even uh, humble him, put him in his place. As they were doing this, a woman who was not invited to the feast somehow got into the house. And as Luke notes in his account of this, this woman was a sinner. She was not the sort of person that scribes and Pharisees like to be seen with or to hang out with. What was worse is the spectacle she made. Like she, she wept tears and, and, and wet Jesus' feet with her tears and, and wiped his feet with her hair as a towel and anointed his feet with oil, and this all seemed really scandalous and, and, and not appropriate. And the Pharisees looked on this and thought, mm, this is bad. Jesus, when he's encouraged to rebuke this woman for her excess, instead turns to his host, Simon, and rebukes him. Jesus says, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Simon invited Jesus to the table, but there was no hospitality. There was no welcome. His lack of hospitality was demonstrated because although Jesus was invited, he did not receive the abundance that would have shown that he was welcome. Because a host shows his guests that they are welcome through abundance. The anointed head, the overflowing cup, these are manifestations of the host's love and care for his guests. 
When we read these words, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This is God demonstrating his love for us in welcoming us to this table that he has set for us. Remember, our feast, the feast that we look forward to, is not yet. It is not here. It is the feast to come, the eschatological feast. But even now in this wilderness, he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And at this table, he lavishes abundance upon us to show us his love. But what you have to know is this. This abundance is a sign. God's goodness to me now is a sign of his goodness to me forevermore. The psalm concludes, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The mercy that shall follow me in Hebrew is hesed. It's that word we've looked at before, uh, often translated steadfast love. It's God's covenant faithfulness, the way that he's bound himself to us in love That love will follow me all the days of my life and beyond when I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When the covenant promise is fulfilled, we will find ourselves dwelling in the house of the Lord. We will find ourselves in the temple. Better yet, we will be the temple, God's dwelling place, because the church is the house of the Lord with Christ as its cornerstone. Peter speaks to us, he says, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, meaning Jesus Christ. He is the shepherd. He is the overseer of our souls. And now more than ever, we need to turn to him and call upon him praise him as the good shepherd. Shepherd who is with us in this wilderness. The shepherd who is leading us into the promise where we will feast as his guests forevermore. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.